is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand, welcome to the program. The world is busy making electric vehicles, which is creating plenty of demand for battery metals like lithium, nickel and cobalt. Here in the Northern Territory, it's created a surge in mining exploration, which has got some people concerned. In our rush towards exploring for lithium and mining for lithium, we're really cutting the corners and that's putting Litchfield Finnis region and the communities that live there at risk. But first up today, Australia's biggest cattle company, AA Cove, has released its half-yearly financial results today, and it's a bit of a mixed bag. Its operating profit, compared to the same period last year, has jumped nearly 30% to $38 million. But its net profit after tax has fallen by 37%. I spoke to David Harris this morning. He's the Managing Director and Chief Executive of AA Cove, and I asked for his summary of the last six months. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It, uh, I think it's been a really good six months. I think uh, it was really pleasing to be able to announce an improved result on uh, on the first six months of last year. I think we're continuing to drive revenue, drive value for shareholders, and we've got some really good, interesting um, strategies in place that are that are certainly starting to and continuing to pay dividends for us, Matt. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, David. I've got AACO's net profit after tax has fallen 37% year on year, and it's down 62% compared to what was posted in the yearly results there in May. Now, why is that? Yeah, that's right. So that statutory result uh, takes into account um, fair value of of, um, of livestock. And so compared to uh, this time, you know, a year ago, I suppose those livestock values didn't um, didn't increase as they did back then. So there was actually a slight decrease in actual you know kilo valuations um, versus those periods. So that's where the real difference comes from um, in those livestock valuations versus you know its first six months um, in the prior year. Does that explain the total story though? Because as was mentioned in the presentation. Cattle prices are, quote, slightly down from the record highs. So there's a drop of 37%. Is there something else going on? No, not at all, mate. We've um, we've got really good operating profit figures, which is what we prefer to talk to as, a, as an indicator of how the business is going uh, more broadly. Like I said, that statutory piece is, um, is largely a, a factor of those other valuations that, you know, for all purposes are outside our controls. Meat sales are on the up, including in Europe and Middle East. Can you tell us the story there? Yeah, they are. That was principally, like we said in the presentation, it's a it's a moving. Uh, you know, we we took some products out of some other markets, uh, including Australia, and into there. Um, it's a really good food service market, and so as food service rebounded, you know, with with everyone coming out of COVID, those markets certainly took off probably uh, a little bit faster and a little bit stronger than some others. And so we, we redirected product into there to take advantage of those um, of those increased prices and demand relative to other markets that we operate in. And Australia, your home now takes just 7% of total meat sales for AACO. Has it ever been that low? 
Yeah, good question. Uh, it probably uh, it probably hasn't from a from a total percentage wise perspective, but again, that's um, that's us making the blend and, and making decisions around where we can extract the best value for the product. Um, we've got a lot more competition in Australia, um, and so we've found better markets overseas. Um, we've always been, you know, predominantly uh, export focused, um, but again, that's around. You know, we go where the money is and where we think the markets that are that we can continue to grow. Um, now, with all that said, Australia is a very important market for us. And like we said, we you know, um, it is our home and, and we think it's super important. So we have specific locations in, in the major, you know, in the capital cities that we work with. We've done some great activations with chefs in Australia. So we're continuing to drive, uh, you know, price and, and value in, in the Australian market. But, yeah, in, in this period that we're talking about, um, there was better opportunities elsewhere. Away from the numbers, AACO is carrying out a trial feeding asparagopsis, the seaweed, to some of its stock. How is that going? Yeah, good question. Good question. We're about midway through that trial. So it's a, it's a longer trial because it's more specifically aimed around feeding asparagopsis to wagyu cattle. So that's a you know circa 300-day-plus program. So we're about halfway through that. Uh, I won't talk to specifics of those details at this stage. It's commercial and confidence, and, and we're working through that with our partners. But it is a real opportunity for us to utilise it going forward um, as part of our um, more broader application of you know trying to affect and Im- improve our imprint on on that methane side of things. Um, and so I'm really positive about its opportunity but I don't think there's a silver bullet in any one of, of these products. I think it'll be a, a broad range of multiple products that we'll need to use. Um, obviously, the government's signed up to the, the methane pledge, so you know, which is something we're not opposed to, but there is a lot of work to still be done in that. I don't think there's any one product out there today that's going to get beef or get agriculture more broadly to, to that 30% reduction, so... Can I ask, though, which product do you think's got the bigger future, seaweed or synthetic products that do the exact same thing? Yeah, look, that's a, it's an interesting one, and I think it's, it's one that probably the market will, will answer and, and the customers will answer more than I. Um, I think it's a courses-for-courses situation. I think uh, both products have uh, a place in the market. Um, Obviously, some of the challenges of these things is actually mode of transport or or mode of delivery, and so um, I think some of those synthetics may have a better you know opportunity for delivery out in our broader um, pastoral type operations. But uh, but there is no doubting that the asparagopsis has a wonderful organic story to it, has a has a wonderful um, you know more natural story to it. That I am sure there are customers out there that will be more than com- comfortable to pay pay a premium for for a, a product of that nature. On the investor presentation this morning, you raised biosecurity and how there's a 28% chance of lumpy skin disease getting into Australia within the next five years. For average investors out there looking at the stock market, why is AACO a good buy when there's that sort of threat lingering? Yeah, uh, that's a good one, Matt. Uh, look, I think it's... It's it's a balance of of a lot of things. Why is AACO a, a good buy? I think we're 
um, doing some really good things in agriculture and, and specifically beef production. But, you know, sustainability-wise, I, I think there's a lot of good stories behind AA. Um, if, if, if we talk specifically to the lumpy skin disease and that 28% uh, likelihood of incursion in the next five years. There's no doubting that's a challenge, um, and that's something that we're working towards. You know, we're developing our own, you know, biosecurity plans, property by property. We've got multiple different locations in in multiple different regions, and whilst yes, we are predominantly Northern Territory and Queensland, um, our value chain and how we extract um, revenue, I think, is very diverse. Um, across the country and so I, I think we're in a really good spot to be as resilient as possible if something like that does does happen to Australia and as well as you know we'll be in the best position to try and come out the other side of it as, as fast as anyone and strongly. Yeah and, so and just I, on that we know that if it got found tomorrow it would trigger a national livestock standstill but is it clear in your mind David on how quickly AACO would be able to access export markets? Oh look, I think there is still some work to do there with our with our exporting partners and with um, some of the the protocols that are in place there. So we're certainly working with government and, and and the authorities to get ahead of some of those challenges and make sure that we've got clear guidelines and clear thought processes onto the roadmaps out of something like that if it was to happen. Um, so. The answer to that right here and now is there is some grey area, but we're working hard with those people that can affect that, including the government. Um, and, you know, um, there's there's a bit of work to do yet, but I think if we all proactively continue to manage it, we will we will get the best result possible. Um, and from a management perspective, we've got to focus on the things we can control. Um, I don't... I, I wouldn't want a business to be paralysed out of, you know, the thought that one day this might happen. So, so we try to keep a like a cautious, thoughtful, but, you know, proactive and positive outlook on things. And just finally, as you would appreciate, when we broadcast across the Northern Territory, most people want an update on the Livingston Abattoir. What can you tell them? What I can tell them, I think, uh, firstly, we we certainly believe that the asset has strategic value to the company. Um, it is still being maintained in its suspended state, but we do like I said, continue to maintain the facility. We do have a small workforce there. Um, I do think that sometime in the future market conditions will will improve for that facility and and in some way, shape or form, it, it will oper- operate again. But um, some of those are, you know, macroeconomic type pieces out of our control. But long story short, we do think it's got strategic value to the business and we're keeping it in in the sort of shape it can be so that we can activate that as soon as we um, feel that the economic numbers stack up for us to um, fire it back up. A really busy day for you. Thanks for sharing time for the Country Hour. Not a problem, Matt. David Harris, he is the Managing Director and Chief Executive of the Australian Agricultural Company. It's half yearly results out today. As we go to where shares in AACO are down 3.7%. Year to date, however, its share price has increased by more than 11%. G'day, I'm Angus Gidley-Baird. I'm the Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank and you're listening to The Country Hour. Our text number here at The Country Hour is 0487 Got a message here from Marty who says, Matt, 
83 millimetres of rain recorded at the Granites. Feeling for all of the users on the Tenamai track. Yeah, the Tenamai's had a bit of rain over the last few days. Be interesting to see how that road is holding up. Thank you for your text, Marty. And just looking at top-end radars this afternoon, there is a big band of rain stretching from, say, Dorisvale Cattle Station to Daly Waters, and it's heading northeast. So heading towards places like Catherine and Mataranka. That's decent rain. We'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau at five past one to get the very latest. Good to hear from David Harris today, the boss, the fairly new boss of the Australian Agricultural Company, sharing some thoughts on various topics, including on biosecurity. Over in Indonesia, a vaccination program for foot and mouth disease continues to be rolled out. Indonesia claims it's making headway on becoming FMD free. But President of the Queensland Live Exporters Association, Greg Pankhurst, told a beef conference in Mount Isa this week that he sees the situation a little bit differently. So foot and mouth disease has come all the way down through Sumatra. It's uh, right across Java. It's in uh, Sulawesi. It's down into Bali. It's across into uh, NTD, NTB. So it's, it's worked its way right down uh, into uh, East, uh, East uh, Indonesia now. Uh, yes, there's a there's a very good vaccination program which is rolling out as of today. About 5.8 million vaccines have been distributed throughout Indonesia, uh, mainly into the cattle population. So we we shouldn't forget that that uh, buffalo and pigs and goats also will contract foot and mouth disease. So as I said earlier, 65 million animals need to be vaccinated. Uh, we're about six million at the moment, so it, it's time-consuming, but it has been rolled out. And just to provide context for Australian graziers and farmers, what has that rollout been like? Have has it been smooth? So initially, uh, there was a lot of confusion in Indonesia. Very, very difficult to um, acquire vaccines. Quite difficult to to acquire vaccines. Uh, there need to be a number of legislations uh, approved to bring in. Uh, FMD vaccine which which hadn't been brought into Indonesia for some 40 years so it was slow Uh, so between May and uh, end of June was when we first saw our first vaccines roll out to a a very limited few Um, but it it has been slow uh, but I believe the government and in with especially with the uh, national disaster um, body overseeing it at the moment they're doing a reasonable job for graziers in Australia, what are we looking at in terms of export numbers? We're starting to see uh, live X into Indo rise again. There was quite the halt um, when, when FMD was declared. Are we looking to get back to normal levels? Yeah, I, th- I think it will get back to normal levels, but it's not so much foot and mouth disease now. All animals which um, enter Indonesia now immediately on discharge in, in the feedlot they've been received in Indonesia will receive a foot and mouth disease and, a, and in most cases a lumpy skin disease vaccine as well because they're naive as they come into the country. Um, so this year it's been quiet, but a lot of that quiet uh, exporting is due to the, the price. 
So we've uh, we've seen record prices again out of the north, uh, and you know, Indonesia's probably just not in a position to be paying those prices. It's great for the producer. He's uh, he's getting record prices because they're certainly we've seen in the past where the producer hasn't got those record prices. Uh, lumpy skin disease seems to be the lesser talked about cousin to FMD. That you know arrived in Singapore in March 2022. It's now in Indonesia. It's reached Java, I believe. Is that a more significant threat to the Australian agricultural industry than FMD? Yeah, personally, I have more concern about LSD because it is a, a vector-borne. So it's uh, it's going to blow in on insects, um, and again, it's. It's difficult to transmit. It's better that animals are transmitted together and animals are in close proximity and biting animals jump from one animal to another. But it is the big concern because there's no matter how much biosecurity we put in place, if if insects are blown down from Indonesia, and, and as you said, LSD is now in Java, so it's moved through Sumatra into Java, we haven't seen it go into Bali or into East Sumatra at the moment, but the way it's travelled through Sumatra, it's travelled down through Sumatra in about six months. So you could uh, you could say it's probably going to move on to uh, East Indonesia probably within the next three to six months, I suppose. That is Greg Pankhurst, who's the president of the Queensland Live Exporters Association, speaking to Lucy Cooper. It's 13 to 1, and you are tuned into the Country Hour. Up next, the latest news on the argy-bargy between the unions and Australia's biggest tugboat operator. That's next on The Country Hour. Trade at some of Australia's biggest ports could come to a halt tomorrow unless the Fair Work Commission can convince unions and a tugboat company to resolve their differences. This long-running dispute involves Australia's biggest tugboat operator, Svitsa. This company has threatened to lock out its employees from midday tomorrow. The lockout would effectively stop the movement of ships in and out of up to 17 Australian ports. Neil Chambers from the Container Transport Alliance Australia gave David Clawton an update on this dispute. The unions overnight have suspended their uh, protected industrial action, which they're uh, allowed to undertake under the, the, the current Fair Work Act. Um, so, but they've suspended that action. Um, Svitzer, as the towage operator, has continued to say that the lockout of their workforce will continue from midday on Friday. But I suspect, uh, and I, we hope, um, that the hearing of the Fair Work Commission will bring the parties together, terminate the protected action, uh, meaning that Switzer um, has no need really then to lock out its workforce and hopefully heads will prevail uh, with the Fair Work Commission and they'll be asked to uh, enter into further negotiations on their enterprise agreement. Now, is that a major step, termination of a dispute? Look, this occurred uh, in some of the disputes which were occurring on the waterfront with the container terminals uh, last year. Um, it, it, was, it came to a head within the Fair Work Commission and... Uh, the protected in industrial action was was put aside and, and ordered not to occur for for a period of months, so that the parties could have some clear air with the assistance of the Fair Work Commission to to reach a, a final agreement. 
and and in the case of the, the container stevedores at that time um, that's what occurred so you you would hope that a, a similar actions taken here um, so we can get the parties back to the negotiating table and to finalize an agreement which has taken um, taken almost three years to to complete we'll look at that in just a sec but if if that doesn't happen today and the the lockout uh, goes ahead tomorrow of all those workers what are the implications for your industry well uh, overnight uh, several of the major ports Fremantle and Melbourne have started to their, their harbour masters and and uh, safety regulators have started to look at the situation of ships alongside or waiting to, to, to come into berth and, and to potentially have those vessels go back out to sea so that they're not uh, uh, caught for any lengthy period of time uh, at the berth. Um, so already we're, we're starting to see, ahead of the lockout, we're starting to see some potential disruption in the movement of vessels uh, to and from Australian ports, um, which is uh, devastating really because uh, clearly in the lead up to Christmas, um, importers are still having product coming into the country uh, for for Christmas and the new year. Um, that will be disrupted uh, and also our exports. Um, we're well into some of the seasonal exports in Australia um, and uh, you know that's the last thing we need is for those exports to be disrupted and, and not meet their contractual obligations overseas uh, for the delivery of commodities. On the agriculture and commodity side, are there particular things there of note? Well, absolutely. Depending on parts of Australia, um, all of our seasonal uh, exports are, are going gangbusters, as they say. So whether it's hay or grain or meat or a whole range of commodities, um, we have fairly buoyant exports uh, at the moment because of the, um, the the cropping conditions and the like. So, um, you know, we the last thing we need is a major, a further major disruption on top of COVID and all the other disruptions that have occurred in the global supply chains over the last couple of years this is, is just something that we don't need what advice uh, and, are you giving to your members at the moment well certainly our members uh, are really captured by the process unfortunately because uh, they're, they're the people who are picking up the containers once they're discharged from uh, from the vessels on import or delivering the exports to uh, to the terminals um, uh, they're, they're having, they then have to put up with uh, what we call the tsunami effect where vessels will bunch together, come alongside all together, discharge all of their cargoes and then you have this mad rush in a sense to, to, to clear cargoes away from, from, from the terminals, the, the wharf. Uh, or and is that, is that happening today? Oh, look, absolutely. And, and one of the disruptions from an export supply chain point of view is that it means that... Uh, um, more containers have to be what we call staged through transport yards. So instead of coming uh, straight from the packing area, whether that be in a regional location or, or elsewhere, straight to the port, which is the much more optimal supply chain, uh, these, these um, export containers are having to be staged back through transport yards and elsewhere. If they're refrigerated containers, they have to be kept on power. So you, you need to find places to plug the, the containers in prior to them being delivered to to the to the wharf for export and um, so any disruption to that that supply chain uh, means additional cost and additional frustration for everybody in the landside logistics supply chain 
That is Neil Chambers, who is the director of the Container Transport Alliance Australia. Spitzer runs eight tugboats in Darwin Harbour. The country has been told this action shouldn't affect operations at the Darwin port because they're on a different employment agreement. That's what we've been told. Big 24, 48 hours ahead, though, for the industry. Now, just before we get to the 1 o'clock local news on the ABC, seriously, seriously big news, interesting news anyway, out of Ohio in the US. Dan Fitzgerald, what can you tell us? Well, Matt, there is around up to 40,000 mink on the loose in Ohio State. What, little ferrets? Little yeah, ferrets little we- they're a part of the weasel family. Uh, they're farmed for their fur. Yep. And, uh, yeah, huge number of them have escaped. Uh, police believe they've been deliberately let loose by somebody. And apparently they're just everywhere around this farm. Um, they're dead bodies of mink that are scattered all over highways because oh, cars have been running over them. Um, people want them rounded up, obviously. They're carnivores, so they're a threat to things like chickens. Um, farmers want them rounded up. Uh, big effort going into trying to clean them up. Uh, let's hear a little bit of a snippet from a local news report by WTOL11. In the hours since the escape, sheriff's deputies confirmed for me that snowplows had to be brought in to deal with all the roadkill, and dozens of locals have come out with firearms to help control the population. One such local is Steve Rip Logel, who says he's already shot eight minks so far today. He says his friend's chicken farm has already been attacked, and he's shooting them as a public service. A danger to society. Nuisance. What do you plan on doing with them? Well, I heard they're about $40 a pop, so I must find out where I can get them. With mink hunting technically illegal in Ohio, it's hard to tell where the chips will fall legally with this behavior. With deputies on scene actively encouraging people to find the animals, it's unclear if there will be any repercussions. And if the locals don't kill them, Young says it's still unlikely they will survive the winter. Because of the time of the year, the availability of prey is going to be somewhat limited for them. Uh, so unfortunately, a lot of them are going to starve to death. Yeah, that's a report there from uh, Michael Sandlin from WTOL oh. in Ohio. This is insane. 40,000 mink on the run. I'll make a movie out of this one day, or at the very least a cartoon. Thanks for your time, Dan. It's now news time, one o'clock. Uh, matches turtle, cattle class, tow drive for sherbet livestock. We're all flat out. Give us plenty of room on the road, and you're listening to the country out. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. With the rise and rise of electric vehicles, resources companies in the Northern Territory are on the hunt for battery metals like lithium, nickel, cobalt and manganese. The hunt is on, the rush is on, but some environmental groups are concerned. We'll talk about this in a moment. And they're chasing mink in Ohio. (laughs) That story is up on the ABC News website if you are interested. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. Beck, you across this uh, big international story? 40,000 mink on the loose? Oh, I did not hear about that at all. Um, Someone's left a gate open or, or maybe there's a bit of foul play and a gate has been... Pushed open, but at the end of the day, 40,000 mink on the run in Ohio from a mink farm. Oh, wow. Huge. I don't even know what a mink looks like. To it's like a ferret, honest. like a weasel 
ferret. Yeah. And they okay. get farmed for their fur. Yeah. So I can't say I have a mink jacket. <laughs> but uh, yeah, 40,000 of them on the loose, though. You wait Run till little the, the TV tonight. There'll be some amazing footage coming out of the US. Forget what Donald Trump's doing. Get the mink on. That would. Um, <laughs> and if you've got chickens in Ohio, you're in trouble. They'll be, they'll be hunting them down real quick, I would imagine. Um, yeah. So there's lots going on over there. There's lots going on in the Northern Territory, though, weather-wise. Let's start with some of the best rainfall figures up to 9 a.m., Beck. Yeah, the um, highest total was at the Granites down in the Tanami District, um, with 83 millimetres. Um, and Rabbit Flat as well had a bit of rain um, with that storm that went through yesterday afternoon, um, 48 millimetres there. Um, some good falls in the Gregory District as well, Townsend Creek with 52, um, Cattle Creek 65 and Upper Vic River 66. Um, and further north in the top end, Wandy Creek, um, which is just east of Pine Creek, I think, um, 68 millimetres. So some pretty decent falls. Mm. And what about the ones in Los Central Australia? Alice Springs Airport, 20 millimetres in the gauge. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah, some pretty decent Bond Springs, uh, 19. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, rainfalls around that. Um, 15 to 20 millimetres around that area. So, um, yeah, um, decent decent rainfall for Alice Springs. I think they more than doubled their November rainfall so far. Yeah, so. right. Yeah, wow. Um, and a very happy cattle producer texted me this morning to say 99 millimetres in the gauge at Bunda Station. Oh, wow. In the storm last night, yeah. And um, just looking at the radar this afternoon, Beck, quite the line of uh, storms and, and moisture sort of moving, what, northeast. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, so around the uh, the top end, we are seeing quite active thunderstorm activity right now. Um, so around Larimer area, there's some active showers and storms through there. Daily Waters has picked up 25 millimetres since 9am um, and also extending right throughout the Arnhem district and into southern parts of the, the Daly as well. Um, we are seeing a few showers and storms around Darwin already as well this afternoon. Okay, so what should people expect in the next couple of days when it comes to potential rainfall? So continuing across the top end for, for the next few days, so um, still expecting those pretty decent rainfall totals to continue um, across the north. Uh, in the south, we have a trough that's going to be moving across over the next couple of days, so expecting more showers and storms um, down the, the western parts of the Territory into the Lassiter District today. Um, and spreading eastwards tomorrow. Um, there is risk of severe thunderstorms in that um, continuing as well. We have seen um, a few warnings going out the last couple of days, so that's expected to continue um, with that trough moving eastwards. Uh, so that should start to clear the southern districts around Sunday, but um, continuing through central districts. Um, yeah, so so fairly wet period at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, uh, also, it could be um, a fair bit of wind associated with that trough moving through. So starting up 
um, tomorrow in the Lassa district and extending into the Simpson district on Saturday as well, so fairly windy conditions. Anything else we need to be aware of? Uh, I think that's the main things. Just keep an eye out for thunderstorm warnings. Yep. Um, we're sort of marginal on the fire weather warnings as well for, for tomorrow and Saturday, so just keep an eye on that if you're in the southern parts of the Territory. Uni, it's starting to feel like the wet season, Beck. It is it indeed, really is. yes. <laughs> you have a lovely afternoon. No worries. Thanks, Matt. There's Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau. Now, one of the big stories on the Country Hour this week was news that Core Lithium has started trucking ore to the Darwin port with its first export shipment due out in the coming weeks. We are now transporting our first product to the port of Darwin from the Finnis uh, Lithium Mine. Uh, we're about an hour out of Darwin. Uh, 80% or more of our, uh, of our workers uh, actually uh, live and reside in and around the, the local area. Uh, and we're really pleased to, uh, to be able to see a mine that has got up and running in five or six years in the, in the Territory right next to Darwin. Yeah, so this mine on the Cox Peninsula Road is the Northern Territory's first lithium mine. But that could soon change, according to the Director of the Territory's biggest laboratory for analysing core samples for the mining sector. Ray Waldridge from North Australian Laboratories says there's growing demand for battery metals. So think lithium, nickel, cobalt and manganese. And he says that's driving a big exploration push for these minerals in the Territory. Well, it's been, uh, it's been a big change. Uh, you know, three or four years ago, 80% of our work was gold work and 20% multi-element looking for you know, some of these other commodities. Uh, currently, we're running at about 60% of our workload is for the battery metals, uh, particularly lithium, but also we're doing quite a bit of work, you know, and looking for uh, for nickel. But you know, it's been that much of a change. So, 60% of my workload is uh, is uh, the lithium battery metal type analysis, and 40% gold. Right, and that's just happened in the past few years. In the last two years, it, last year it was uh, 60% gold and 40% multi-element and this year we've transitioned into, into 60% multi-element and 40% gold. Where is most of this exploration happening? A lot of it's up around the Bino Harbour area. You've got uh, companies like Lithium Plus, uh, Ragusa Minerals, um, exploring up in areas uh, adjacent to uh, Cause New Mine. We did all of uh, CORE's uh, work for the last uh, seven years. In fact, their uh, their deposit was established on our assays. So we we've had a lot of experience in the in the in the lithium and battery metals assaying. We're uh, we're actually pulling uh, lithium uh, project worked out of uh, out of Yalgoo in WA and Port Edland uh, in WA. I've just uh, quoted a major lithium project Southern Cross in WA one of the reasons is I can offer pretty good uh, turnaround a lot lot quicker than uh, than any of the southern labs can do and is it is it renewable energy is that the main driver for this demand in these minerals yeah it's because you know you're getting away from the the carbon environment so it's all about uh, you know these metals that are that are needed. An example, uh, you know, a smaller electric vehicle 
has about uh, 65 uh, kilos of copper in it. Bigger vehicles, uh, as much as 120. So the world production, I think, is currently somewhere around a million tonnes a year. the world's, if you transition all of the uh, the vehicles that are manufactured worldwide now to electric vehicles, the world's going to need three times as much copper as we currently produce. The only one way you get it is you've got to go out and explore, and that's why uh, the exploration boom that's on at the moment is uh, you know, the world needs these commodities if we're going to get, get away from fossil fuels. And so do you expect this trend, this growing demand to, to continue then? I certainly do. And, uh, you know, the, the, the demand is not going to drop off because, you know, most of the, the world's vehicle manufacturers have announced that they're transitioning to uh, uh, electric vehicles. So you can't have an electric vehicle if you don't have the copper and to conduct the electricity around the vehicle and... Uh, and, you know, lithium and manganese and cobalt to a nickel to make the uh, the batteries up to, uh, to power them. Does that mean we can expect to see more mines, uh, lithium mines, nickel, cobalt, as you said, in the years to come? Oh, that's certainly the way I see it. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but you've only got to know what the commodities do to, you know, drive these, uh, drive prices and drive uh, drive production. That is Ray Waldridge from North Australian Laboratories. With this growing demand for lithium and other battery metals, environment groups have warned about the rush to build new mines. Nash Gorn is from the Environment Centre NT and says mining regulation in the Territory needs reform. So I think that regardless of what mineral it is that is being mined, it's really important that the regulation is stringent and that environmental processes are followed to the highest degree and our concern is that that is just not happening here and that in our rush towards exploring for lithium and mining for lithium we're really cutting the corners and that that's putting the region the Litchfield Finnis region and the communities that live there at risk. What corners do you, do you think are being cut? So it's the mining laws in the Northern Territory are broken we have a real lack of transparency and accountability with our mining laws. For example, mining management plans for many mines are secret. And despite repeated attempts from community groups and the Environment Centre to access, for example, Core Lithium's mining management plan, it won't be released and is still being kept secret from the community. Also that, for example, the Department of Industry is both the regulator of mines and the promoter of mines. And that money funding is channeled into promoting the resources industry instead of proper environmental regulation of that industry. And in terms of the the mining management plans, I guess um, mines do have to still submit various environmental approvals and go through, uh, the government would say, pretty strict environmental processes. Is that not enough? No, so it's really important that there's a dialogue that occurs with the community about this. We would really like to see mining companies have to publicly report on their compliance with a set of conditions. And in fact, these are all things that the government have committed. The Northern Territory government has recognised that the mining laws need to be reformed. They've committed to undertaking this process. And for months now, we've been promised to see this draft legislation. So what we're saying is really not controversial. 
communities know it, landowners who are subject to mineral exploration leases know it, the government itself knows that the territory's mining laws need to be fixed. We're just urging them to get on with the job and do it. Unfortunately, they seem more interested in rushing the process of exploring for lithium so that if mining companies from outside of the territory can cash in and make a quick buck. But we know that it's the communities in the territory who are going to have to live with the consequences of this. So what is the government telling you then about this legislation? We've been told that the legislation will be released imminently many times, and unfortunately we are yet to see the draft bill. So what would you like to see then? What needs to be fixed in these mining laws? So we would like to see regulatory separation, which means that more responsibilities are given to the Environment Department to regulate the environmental approvals, compliance and monitoring of mines. We'd like to see better funding of the regulator because at the moment the capacity of the regulator to appropriately monitor the environmental compliance of mines, we don't have trust that there's enough funding to do this job. We'd like to see greater transparency. So that means that all mining management plans should be public and that there should be public reporting from mining companies on their compliance with environmental conditions. And we'd also like to see closure and rehabilitation plans publicly released before production occurs at the mines so that communities can have full confidence that it will be the mining companies and not the taxpayer who foot the bill to clean up the mess that the mine leaves. Does an over-regulated sector risk discouraging investment and and holding back, you know, the, the shift to renewables and the growth of these sorts of resources? I think that's a line that the um, mining lobby would like to push. But I think the fact is that the transition to renewables is underway. It is happening. That's a direction that the world is moving in. And of course, that's a direction that we are happy to see the world to be moving in. We just need to make sure that people are not left behind in the move to renewables. And that means that we need to have a proper look at all mines, regardless of what mineral it is, and make sure that they're held to the right environmental standards. That is Naish Gorn from the Environment Centre NT speaking to Max Rowley. Just to some other resources news, the company Arafura Rare Earth Limited, previously known as Arafura Resources, has announced that its mining management plan for its Nolans project in Central Australia has been approved by the Northern Territory Government. So this mining authorisation, it says, allows Arafura to mine, construct and operate the Nolans project. And the company's director, Gavin Lockyer, says this approval, following the recent Hyundai-Kia offtake agreement and project update, adds to the momentum that should allow Arafura to commence procurement and construction with a final investment decision expected to occur in early 2023. This week on Landline, we go mining for the crucial fertiliser phosphate. This is basically the old inland sea. Millions and millions of years of uh, sedimentary runoff. The phosphorus is basically mixed up with clays from the inland sea. 
and earning money for carbon captured in soil. I'd like to know every kilo of beef that I've put on the animals, how much carbon we're putting back in the soil. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. And the Mark Report. How good's the Landline Market Report? That's it for today's Country Hour. If you missed our conversation at the top of the program with David Harris, the Managing Director of the Australian Agricultural Company, that will be available on our podcast later today and also as a separate audio segment via the NT Country Hours website. Keep it rural.